please again turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17, the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. We'll read the first three verses. John 17, 1. These things spake Jesus, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he should give eternal life. And this is life eternal, that they should know you, the only true God, and him whom you did send, even Jesus Christ. Please again join me as we pray together and seek the face and the help of the Lord in preaching and in hearing his word. Our Father, we who stand in this place recognize a good measure of the privilege that is ours to open up your holy book. And we understand something of the awesome responsibility that rests within our own hands and upon our own lips as we are charged with the responsibility to declare the whole counsel that you have revealed in your holy word. We also are aware, Lord, that great judgment rests upon us who teach the word, and we are held extremely accountable for these treasures which you have placed in earthen vessels. We're also aware that the way we hear your word determines our everlasting destiny and comfort and safety. And so we ask you to look upon us in our weakness, in our sin, and as the God who has shown himself to be righteous, almighty and gracious, come and meet our need. O oh Lord, we confess that we are unworthy of the least blessing from you this morning. But we ask you now that you would turn our minds away from ourselves and make us to look to him whom to know is life eternal. Unveil for us the truth. Remove the cobwebs from our eyes and turn our hearts so that we, by our continued plans for sin, would not shut our eyes and close our hearts to the searchlight of your word. Let us not, O Lord, be among those of whom it is said that since they regard iniquity in their hearts, you will not hear them when they pray. O Lord, we do not ask that you... Hear us now because there's measure of good in us, but because of the name and the accomplishments of your Son, 
who came into the world for us, who obeyed you perfectly in our place, who died for our sins, who rose again and ascended and is seated at your right hand, interceding for us. O God, for Jesus' sake, pour out now of your Spirit copious measures of blessing. Open our mouths to speak as we ought, and our ears and hearts to hear and obey as we ought. And for those who sit among us unconverted, strangers to grace, whether old or young, whether church member or not, we pray your saving mercies to be today extended even to them, so that thereby you, our God, may be glorified. Help us now, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. When the rich young man ran to Jesus and asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? He desired, I believe, sincerely to know how to receive this commodity that we call eternal life. He wanted it. He wanted to obtain it and he wanted to know how he could get it. At least as far as he understood it, he wanted it. But he had at least two problems with his understanding. First, he did not understand what eternal life is. And second, he did not understand how it is to be obtained. No doubt he expected that eternal life was merely the everlasting extension of the comforts, liberties, and privileges and pleasures that he was already as a wealthy man enjoying in this world. The Lord had news for him. Disillusioning news. How mistaken he was regarding what eternal life means. He also was gravely in error as to how to obtain this most priceless commodity. How, he asked, May I inherit eternal life? He perhaps thought of some one act by which he could place himself in a position to receive, by right, a position or a portion of the everlasting peace and prosperity of Messiah's kingdom. The word inherit in the scripture usually means the receiving of that which is your due portion of someone's estate or substance. And what he meant when he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life, was what can I do to get myself in a place so that you now owe it to me as my rightful portion? How can I get into the position that I may lay claims on my share of the gift of eternal life? He would gladly have paid for it. But alas, our Lord Jesus was no charlatan seeking the money of his followers. No 
pray for pay evangelist is Christ. He utterly shattered the young ruler's dreams and frustrated his intentions so that he went away sad because the terms on which he was to receive eternal life did not match his assumed terms. We commend the rich ruler for asking the right question. There is no more critical issue in all this world than this one, eternal life. But we pity him for refusing the only proper answer. You in this place, too, must want to know how to get to eternal life. Only a fool would not be concerned with such a thing. We today desire to help you to see how you may have eternal life. And for those of you who already possess it, to help you further understand it and see whether you indeed are judging rightly as you discern yourself. We've already seen in our consideration of this chapter of John what is the essence of eternal life, and it is simply to know God. We also have seen, as we've defined eternal life, something of the quality of it. Intimate, personal, communion with God, and agreement with God forever in which the heart is fully engaged in love of God, love of his ways, love of his people, love of his laws, and a desire to be with God all the time. There's this intimate union with God through Christ that characterizes and is of the quality and essence of eternal life. To know him personally, directly, in the heart. But today, God willing, we shall consider the question further and make the issue clearer by examining the recipients of eternal life according to the Holy Scriptures. By examining the recipients of eternal life, we intend to slay the wretched misconceptions of proud men in our day who think either that they can merit it or that they do not need it. We shall aim our destructive shells at the walls of apostate religionists and hold them siege to the gospel of Christ. Men who today would promote an ecumenical worship service in Albany under the heading of the Pope and offer to God the worship of a Muslim, a Hindu, a, a Jew, a Catholic, and a Protestant as all praying to an accessible God for peace and therefore expecting to obtain their desires because it's all one big thing. We've learned recently that in Guatemala, a man is running for president, a former military leader, Mr. Rioc, I believe, or Rios. And he's running for the presidency, having been utterly ridiculed when he first announced his running for office, because he's a nobody. 
just a military officer and a man with some vision that they downplay. The problem is he has a tremendous following among the incipient multiplied numbers of evangelicals in Latin America. What has happened in recent years is the evangelical churches, especially among the Pentecostals and the fundamentalists, have made incredible inroads into the Roman Catholic power structure of Latin America. Over 20% now are professing, Bible-believing, Bible-thumping religionists with zeal. Now, whether we would agree with all that they do or practice is not my point. But what has happened in response to his now front-running campaign, all the polls seem to indicate he's going to win because the people have been recruited by this grassroots group of evangelicals who have knocked on every door in Guatemala and evangelistically promoted their man under moral and righteous and rational issues. What the Pope then made a visit to Latin America recently. And on his 10 or 12 day visit, he announced nothing would make Papa happier than for these false shepherds to return to the fold. Now what is Rome trying to say? They're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. It's been the way they've done throughout history. They're saying, on the one hand, it doesn't matter what you believe or what God you call, we'll all join together and pray for peace. And what an exhibit of true religion is this, that whether you're a Hindu who believes that you communicate with the divine through certain granted avatars from the top of the Himalayas, or through developing your own unique chant, and you worship that which nobody knows, or whether you're a Muslim who follows a prophet who was a wild boar in the desert and who actually thought at first that the Koran was not to be believed, when the angel appeared to him, the message did not fit his prejudice and he was convinced by other leaders to adopt it as his religion, or whether you are a follower of an orthodox or reformed or conservative Jewish movement who rejects Christ, or a Catholic who believes Jesus is the Son of God but didn't quite finish the work of redemption and needs continued help, or some Protestant who claims, I know not what. To say that on the one hand is ordinary, acceptable worship, such an amalgam of foolishness, and on the other, those evangelicals who are getting the vote out in Guatemala are false shepherds. What Rome is basically saying, we will adopt and adapt to any movement of religion as long as it does not threaten our power structure. And the reason they do it is because they do not understand the obtaining of eternal life in the way the Lord Jesus teaches it and gives it. Any Protestant that would be caught dead in such a religious worship service ought to be pointed out the door when they find his body. For one to stand in the name of historic Orthodox Protestantism which declares that true religion is of the Scripture only, is of God only, is of Christ only, is by faith only, and is by grace only, and to accept such a thing and call himself a Protestant is not only dishonest, but it's rank foolishness.
we wish to slay the religionist theory that eternal life is obtained in some other way than the biblical way. We also, by God's grace, will target Satan's prison house. Our intent is to liberate some of you who are blind by the devil's deceptions and chained to his lusts. May God, who knows every heart in this place and is mighty to save, help us in our endeavor. There are this morning four particulars that I wish to open up to you concerning the recipients of eternal life. Who are these people that have eternal life? And the first is this. The people that have eternal life are those given to Christ by the Father by sovereign selection. Those who have eternal life are those given to Christ by the Father by sovereign selection. In our text, in verse 2, we read, As the Son of God prayed to his Father regarding the approaching hour of his finished work of salvation, he says in verse 2, Even as you gave him, as you, Father, gave him, the Son, authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he should give eternal life. That to all you have given him, that to all you have given to him, he may give to them eternal life. Those that possess eternal life are those who were given to Christ by the Father by sovereign selection. Now, there are three things I want to say about that principle. The first thing is this. The only recipients of eternal life are those chosen by God to be so. The only recipients of eternal life are those chosen by God to be so. Did you notice in our morning psalm, Blessed is the man whom the Lord chooses and causes to come near to him. What makes us pray this morning to the God of gods with confidence that he hears us? He chose us and caused us to come and pray. What makes us love to sing to him? He chose us and caused us to love. To sing to him. Dear brethren, a great help to you, even in your dullest times of devotion, should be, I wouldn't be coming at all if you hadn't chosen me and caused me. You ought to thank God that you even open your mouth with the, the words of the Bible, even if they fall off the dull, dusty lips of a dry heart. You ought to be able to give praise to God that he even lets you say it and made you want to say it. How could you even pray in the state you're in? Because God made you to be able to. You see, instead of concentrating so much on how dull you are, you ought to concentrate on what you'd be doing dull if you didn't know to call on God. 
when you're praying and saying, Lord, how dull I am. Think what you'd be doing if you were not a Christian and you were that dull. Think what you'd be trying to fix yourself with if God had not caused you to draw near to Him. The only recipient of eternal life are those chosen by God to be so. Turn back in John's Gospel with me to the sixth chapter. John chapter 6. Verse 65. I love this passage because it is this passage that so graphically illustrates how often the Lord is able to offend his followers and get rid of them. Now, I didn't say he delights in ridding himself of his followers, but the fact is that he knows how to say what will separate the men from the boys, the true followers from the false. And in this case, it's nothing less than a clear declaration of the absolute sovereignty of God which drives them away. Verse 65 of John 6. And he said, For this cause have I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it be given unto him of the Father. The language here is the language of ability, the language of right. No man can come to me except it be given to him of the Father. Now what that did to this audience was it offended them because they assumed that because of their heritage as Jews, they had an innate right to God. Because they could look at their flesh and see evidence of rightful belonging and a right to inherit the blessings of God, this was offensive because it, in a sense, shut them out. Based on their grounds for access to God, they could not get to God. You cannot, no man can come unless the Father draw him, unless the Father give it to him to come. You can't. He had already announced this to Nicodemus in declaring the fruit and blessing and benefits of Nicodemus' birth. Nicodemus, born into a Jewish family, an Orthodox man. Now he is a zealous leader of the Jews, a Pharisee. Nicodemus lived to the nth degree of adherence to the external code of the Mosaic statutes. He was an Israelite of Israelites, a Jew of the Jews. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, your first birth did you no good in relation to God. I'm sorry, it's worthless to you. As far as the kingdom of God is concerned, you can't see it, you'll never enter it, unless you have a completely new birth, a different birth, another birth. This one is useless to you. You must be born again of the Spirit. That's the theme of John's Gospel that Christ is building a kingdom that is not of this world, else his servants would fight. Christ is building a kingdom of the Spirit. They that worship his Father will not worship in this place or that as permanent designated spots on the globe. They'll worship in spirit and according to revealed truth. But none of them will worship him at all unless God gives it to them so to do. Back in the verse 44 of this same chapter, read with me. John 6, 44. 
No man can come to me except the Father that sent me draw him. Two simple statements. You just can't come to me unless the Father brings you. Utter dependence on a work of God to bring a man or a woman or a child into saving contact with Jesus Christ. You can't come without God's work. Now these statements that we've read in John 6 are not explicit statements regarding God giving a certain people to his Son in the counsels and covenant of redemption. But they are statements that make it clear that nobody ever obtains eternal life unless God gives it to him to obtain it. You can't beat your way into the door unless you come God's way and God's timing and God's the one that has to bring you. And you see, part of the design of that declaration is not to discourage people from coming, but to break down their pride and to make them understand that they're utterly dependent on God if they're going to live. It's to kill the kind of pride that was typical of Jerusalem in the day in which the Lord spoke this. As you read further in John 6, you see that for this reason, the multitudes quit following him and went away and followed him no more. He lost the crowd. Yes, it's true that Christ has power over all flesh. We read it in the same passage in John 17. But not all flesh will be saved. And by that we mean not every man, woman, and child who has ever been born into the earth will be saved. Christ has power over all flesh. But he utilizes that power that he has over all flesh to give eternal life to some among that flesh who were particularly given to him of the Father. I wish we could have the time to open up that subject of how Christ's work for his elect has so blessed the rest of the world. How he has exercised his authority over all flesh to save his people. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus calmed that lake in the middle of that storm? Well, did you ever think that there were lots of other fishing boats on that lake that day in the middle of the storm? Now, the reason he calmed the storm was particularly to teach his disciples a wonderful lesson about his authority and power and their needs to depend on him. and all. But a lot of good things happened way out beyond that little boat. There are lots of fishermen that had a nice remaining time of net casting after that. That lake blessed lots of folks after the Lord did it. But his, perf- his, his particular focus was not on all the fishing boats, but on this one boat. But his doing a work for that one boat blessed all the rest of them. Boy, boy that storm cleared fast who never even knew who did it. But they received the benefits of it. We've talked much about how the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ has so scattered and sprinkled the world with goodness and people don't give him glory for it. All sorts of orphanages and hospitals and caretaking centers and benevolence flow out of the cross. Though none would search it back to that except those who know what the cross did. He has power over all flesh. He destroys one government. And many suffer as a result so that many others might have walls broken down for Bibles to enter. Hear the gospel and one day praise Him in glory. He raises up one other government. And many rejoice. But the result, the reason for his raising the government up is not because he particularly regards the righteousness of the governor and the governed. 
but because he has a great purpose for the history and future of that nation in its usability in the spread of the gospel to the earth. That's the picture of America. He has power over all flesh, but not all flesh will be saved. In Psalm 2, the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give you the heathen for your possession. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your possession. Messiah is told by the Father to make request of the Father, and the Father, in answer to his request, will give him multitudes of the nations. But it doesn't mean that Jesus is going to save every human being on the face of the earth from their sins. He's going to save those whom the Father gave him. In Psalm 110, verse 3, we read that thy people will offer themselves willingly in the day of thy power. In the day in which Messiah comes to his throne and pours out his spirit on the house of Israel, on the church, and founds his church, and begins to send the gospel to the world during that day of a messianic authority in which his name is exalted above every name and at whose name every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. In that day of his power, thy people, his people, those given him of the Father, will come and offer themselves willingly. We don't believe that man has no will. We're slanderously reported as believing that, but we do not believe that. You do have a will. And you have a will that is free to choose. It has a right to choose. But you do not ever choose rightly unless God does something in you first. The exercise of your will freely is the result of what God did through the power of His exalted Son. They come willingly in the day of His power, not in the day of their power. They do not willfully come and therefore God is under obligation to respond to their free will and save them. They willingly offer themselves because God has done in His Son that which makes it possible and makes them want to come. God doesn't make them come against their wills. He makes them willing to come. In chapter 10 of John, and you may want to switch over this with me so you can see these words, the Lord uses more particular language. In chapter 10, verse 26, He speaks to these religionists among Jerusalem. And he says, but you believe not. And why don't you believe? Because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. He gives unto who? His sheep. He does not give eternal life to those who are not his sheep. He gives it to those who are his sheep. And the way you know that they are his sheep is that when he speaks to them, they hear him and follow him. And the way that you know others are not his sheep is that when he speaks to them, they do not hear him and they do not follow him. And they shall never perish, he goes on to say, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father, look at this, who has given them to me is greater than all. How did they become his sheep? 
On what basis? The Father had given them to the Son so that in the day of his power all of them came. They heard. They followed. Oh, what a wonderful mystery it is as to why one day it all made sense to your mind. One day they said what you may have heard a hundred times before in different forms. Some of you may have sat in Mass for years and heard the Bible read through the readings of the Old and the readings of the New and the readings of the Epistles and the readings of the Prophets and the readings of the... And you heard the Gospel. I sat in Mass and heard the Gospel read just as plain as it could be read. And I looked around while they yawned and they exchanged notes and they laughed and they elbowed and they paid no attention and the priest read it as though he hadn't, didn't know what in the world he was reading. And when they said prayers, they said prayers. They never made any effort to get to God. There was no sense of holy spiritual worship. The Spirit of God was absent from the place and yet the gospel was read clearly. Maybe you were there one time, but one day the things you've been hear, heard reading all your life and somebody told it to you and somehow you believed you had a Savior available to you. And you ran to him and he saved you from all of your idolatry and all of your darkness and all of your superstition and he liberated you. And you look back on that and say, how'd that happen? Why is that day? Why when that man said it? Why not all the other times? God opened your eyes. Christ saw to it that at the proper time, according to his own will, you came. The Father gave you to him. That's why he brought you when he wanted you. That's why you came. He made the difference. Dear people, if all it was, if, if all it were were the gospel being so obviously wonderful and any brain, man with a brain would believe it, then you would have believed the first time you heard it. Some do, but many don't. You would have believed the first time it was read to you. But it's not in you to do that unless God puts it in you to do it. God gave them to his Son. Ephesians 1 tells us that we were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. In, in respect to his Son and in the context of his Son, God chose a people, gave them to his Son, and God giving them to his Son laid the groundwork for their coming to him in the day of his power. The only recipients of eternal life are those chosen by God to be so. You say, what do I do then? You ask God to save you, that's what you do. But what if I'm... The gospel doesn't tell you to ask whether you're chosen. The gospel tells you to choose this day whom you will serve. But that doesn't make sense. The gospel says do that. Come, believe, and you shall be saved. But on. The second thing I want to say about that first major principle, that those given to Christ by the Father by sovereign selection are those that have eternal life, is this. Not only are they the only recipients of eternal life, but the choice is utterly and completely sovereign. You say, Pastor, that sounds redundant. Well, I don't mean it to be redundant. I mean it to mean this. The choice that God makes in giving a people to his Son is utterly and completely sovereign, meaning that he does it, he chooses them and gives them to his Son according to nothing but his own will. 
Ephesians 1.5 says that this choice from before the foundation of the, of the world, it tells us the reason. According to the good pleasure of his will. It doesn't say according to what he saw in them. According to what he knew they would be later. But according to the good pleasure of his will. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And the technique that I'm using is to bring to bear two or three scriptural witnesses to support the statements I'm making. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. This choice is utterly and completely sovereign. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For behold your calling, brethren that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God chose the foolish things of the world that he might put to shame them that are wise. And God chose the weak things of the world that he might put to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the things that are despised did God choose, yea, and the things that are not, that he might bring to naught the things that are. And what's the result and purpose of all this? That no flesh should glory before God. No one will ever be able legitimately to say, God chose me because of something in me. And the way God brings that about most often is by choosing the things none of us would ever have chosen. And choosing the kind of people that this world would never choose. One of the great dangers and one of the great detriments of the current movement in the churches of Protestantism along with Rome is their rampant effort to make themselves rich and powerful and somebody. And thereby remove the very issue of the cross itself. I tell you, if God ever blesses us with other property, may God spare us from trying to make it so ornate and so ostentatious that we get any glory for it. May God, on the other hand, spare us from being content with a dirty yard and unpicked up garbage and unpainted doors. There's two sides to that. But I tell you what, in the dignity and simplicity of a house of worship, God can get glory. But let us not start thinking, if we could only be big and we could get on TV, if we could only be sharp and appeal to the upper echelons, brethren, the gospel is never going to appeal generally to the upper echelons. Some of them will be saved, but not because the church came up with a new strategy. The strategy of God is to choose the weak, the despised and the things that do not exist and make out of them the wonderful things that do exist so that no flesh will glory before the Lord. It's completely sovereign. You see, he doesn't choose us because there was anything in it. He chooses the exact opposite, the least likely he chooses. Why? Because he's sovereign in the choice. We cannot explain why. Because God does it. In Romans chapter 9, another witness, graphic witness, Romans 9, 14. Having described how God, before the two boys, the two twins were born, Esau and Jacob, in the womb, he loved these blobs of protoplasm. 
these fetal tissue. He loved one of them and hated the other one, Jacob and Esau. These unmentionable nothings that people abort because it's not real murder. God loved one of those individuals with a name and he hated the other individual that was in that womb. Somebody said, why do you always jump on that, brethren? We're living in a holocaust. I jump on it every time I can, just exactly the way John the Baptist jumped on the vipers every time he had a chance when they came out in their hypocritical robes. I would beg of you, if you have a problem with those little inserts, not to take upon your own shoulders the responsibility of deciding what ought to be preached. Because with that comes tremendous accountability. Let me bear that. You be thankful that God's got me in that position and not you. In Romans 9, verse 14, Paul responds to a question. He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Because, see, that's the logical question. God has chosen whom he's going to love before they were ever born. That, that's not right. It's not there. Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid! For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So it is not of him that wills, not of man who has a willpower, nor of him that runs, not of man in his efforts, but of God that has mercy. Mercy. Now notice the key word is mercy. No merit. It's mercy. They don't have it coming. There's no deserving. It's mercy. And it comes freely from God. And then he, just, and he uses Pharaoh as an example and concludes in verse 18, So then, he has mercy on whom he will, and whom he will, he hardens. You find in that passage some explanation found in the sinner as to why God either has mercy or hardens. You find in that passage some explanation. Well, some believed and some didn't. That passage does not even suggest such a thing. That passage, in fact, assumes that the logical question growing out of it is, God is unrighteous. Because it's obvious that whoever's in, is in because God chose him before he even had a chance to believe anything. That's the point. Utterly sovereign. And then quickly in chapter 11 of Romans, he concludes in verse 36. The whole argument. Verse 36 of chapter 11. For of him and through him and unto him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's what the gospel is designed to produce. Who are the recipients of eternal life? Those given to Christ by the Father, by sovereign selection, they are the only recipients, and the choice is utterly and completely sovereign. But the third aspect of this first point I want to lay out for you is, not only are they the only recipients, and not only is this choice utterly sovereign, but all those so chosen will certainly possess eternal life. That's vital to know that. Not only is it utterly God's choice, for no reason found in the sinner that some have eternal life. But every single one whom the Father has given to his Son by such sovereign selection will indeed be saved. There's not a chance in the universe that it will not be so. You see, election doesn't shut people out who otherwise would have come. Election 
brings people in who otherwise would never have come. Election is not God surveying a world full of righteous and well-meaning believers and deciding to say, no, for sovereign reasons that I'm not willing to say, you're out, you're in, and have some go away sorrowful who met all the terms of the gospel, but God is sovereign and they could not therefore be saved. That is not the doctrine of the Bible. No, election is God surveying a world full of nothing but sinners who love their sins. There is none good, no, not one. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeks God, not one. And of all those, God graciously, for reasons known only to his great heart, chooses to make his own. He calls them righteous. He delivers them from his wrath. He adopts them as his sons and he gives them the whole inheritance of heaven for free. And you can never explain it except God is gracious. And it produces in the heart of every one of them nothing but praise and wonder and thanksgiving. That's why an unthankful Christian is a contradiction of terms. That's why a non-worshipping believer is a contradiction of terms. That's why a Christian who will not submit himself to the oversight of Christ's church and worship in the context of revealed religion, there's no reference to merit, and there's no reference to our ability to repay the Lord. What did the thief on the cross ever give back? What will you ever give back? Who has received of the Lord and recompensed unto him again? Romans 11.35 No reference to merit. No reference to ability to pay back. No reference to foreseeing faith. God chose those whom he knew would believe. No, you wouldn't believe if he hadn't chosen you. He chose you so you could believe. So you would believe, not because you did. There's no election if God simply chooses one who's already chosen. Ah, this is a believer. Therefore, I will choose him and I'll get the glory. How can God get the glory when it was the believer that made the difference? That's why the church churches that preach the old doctrines of perverted sense of man-centeredness are filled with non-worshippers. And they have to puff them up with entertainment to get them turned on. Because there's nothing flowing out of the heart of a saved people that motivates itself to praise and worship God. All those that the Lord has chosen will certainly have eternal life they're completely sovereignly chosen with no reference to themselves, but every last one of them will come. Because Jesus says in chapter 17, verse 2 of John, To all that thou hast given me, that I'll give them eternal life, without exception. To all those thou hast given me. To all those thou hast given me. If you're chosen, you'll be saved. If you're one of the elect, You'll make it to glory. Turn back again to John chapter 6, verse, 7, verse 37. Now, in the same passage in which the Lord slays the pride of the Jewish nation for thinking that it has a right to have access to him, in which he says to them, You cannot come unless my Father draw you. He also says in verse 37 of John 6, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. 
All that the Father gives me shall come to me. God will not be frustrated in his purpose. He'll not choose some and give them to the Father, and then somehow they have thwarted his purposes by rejecting him and not letting him in. I heard it again on the radio this morning. Will you not open your heart and let the Lord have his way? My dear friend, the Lord will have his way. I think the, the man meant well. I think what he was trying to say was, open your heart in faith, turn from your sin, cling to Christ. But his language is unbiblical and thereby misleading. And it, it has become crystallized and concretized in false religion in our day. He says, all those that the Father has given me will come. And then he says, and he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. He doesn't mean just here that I'll reject him when he comes. He means that once he's come, he'll never leave. I'll never in the future cast him out of my kingdom. He that comes brought by the Father, given to me by the Father, coming on the terms of the Father, he sticks. I'll keep him. He goes on to say, I came that I may raise him up at the last day. You see, it's not just a short-term thing. When he comes... On the Father's terms, by the Father's power, to me, I will raise him up at the last day. Preservation, perseverance of the saints. What great comfort there is. Oh, dear brother, don't be confused by your election. Rejoice in the certainty of its fruits. Therefore, let him that glories, glory in the Lord. How it slays your pride, doesn't it? That God's going to have to save you. God's going to have to do all the saving. But how it liberates the despairing soul who knows its sin, who knows its filth, who knows its weakness, and says, how could I ever be saved? It's a liberating doctrine. You see, Thomas Watson put it in this term. Do not, God does not choose us because we're worthy, but by choosing us makes us worthy. Don't look at yourself and say, how could he ever choose me? Oh, the same way he ever chose anybody else. Unmerited. Free grace. None are outcasts in those terms. There are none that are beyond the reach of God's saving power and grace. There are no sinners so bad that God will not save them by grace. You can't sin, you can't sin that bad. You cannot do a collective number of things so offensive that God would decide for that reason he will not have mercy on you any more than he would ever decide that he would have saved somebody else because he was good. The best righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So it's all mercy and it's all grace and that liberates us who know our weakness and know our sins. I tell you, I go back to this fountain of hope over and over again. I say, Lord, remember on what grounds you chose me in the first place. And for that reason, on the same grounds you chose me, bless me today in spite of the fact that I have no right to ask in myself. You say, well, Pastor, I'm a little afraid of that. That could tend toward antinomianism, toward thinking, toward motivating you to be sloppy and lazy and disobedient. I don't believe I've ever drunk this doctrine in fully and it motivated me to be lazy or disobedient. Just the opposite. I don't believe I've ever gotten an accurate picture of the gospel and the grace of God's free gift and I've turned around and slept through the next morning and not wanted to read my Bible. I don't remember ever seeing it like this and not having already... 
buying myself two or three weeks of bliss just because of that one sight. Now, I confess I need to see it quite often because I forget it. Don't you? I'm glad we have every seven days assigned for us to come and hear the Word of God open. I'm glad we have our Bibles at home so we can read them every morning and every evening and every time at break at school and on the work job, every break we get to read it because we need to understand that if the Father gave us to the Son, we'll be saved. And we need to be not despairing about it. As one man wrote, In whatsoever dunghills God's elect are hid, election will find them out and bring them out. Where were you? Some of you could give us a long list of a sordid past. Some of you weren't sordid. You were just arrogant and vain and presumptuous. God's grace found you, and there's no way in the world you could keep from being saved because God set his loving grace upon you, and you came. So we declare that those who have, are the recipients of eternal life in the first place are those who are given to Christ by the Father, by sovereign selection. They are the only recipients of eternal life. The choice is utterly and completely sovereign, only God's will. And all those so chosen will indeed have eternal life. But in the second place, and very quickly, and I believe that this is as far as we'll attempt to go today, those who possess eternal life are those who believe on Christ as he's presented in the gospel. Because it's not enough to say, chosen, saved. It's not enough to say, well, if I'm elect, I'm going to make it. I don't need to do anything. In fact, that's a foolhardy thing to do. You are not going to receive eternal life unless you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he's presented in the gospel. Turn with me to John chapter 11. John 11, 25. Jesus said unto her, this is Martha, upon the funeral follow-up of Lazarus, her brother's death, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes on me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes on me shall never die. You see the connection between eternal life and believing on Christ? I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes on me shall never die. And he that lives and believes on me shall never die. The first I misquoted, shall, if though he die, he shall live. And he that lives and believes on me shall never die. Then again in the chapter that we're considering, in John chapter 17, verse 20, a, a hint to this same principle. Verse 20 of John 17. In this high priestly prayer, here's what the Lord says. And this is a beautiful collection of several of the things we've already preached. He's been praying for the apostles. And he's not praying for the world in general. He's praying for his. But then in verse 20 he says, Neither for these only, these apostles only, do I pray, but 
for them also that believe, and I think literally a better translation is, that will believe on me through their word. I'm not just praying for these eleven, one, twelve, one of whom is the son of perdition. I'm not just praying for these eleven, but for all those who will believe. Now, they are the same ones whom the Father has given him. And they're the same ones for whom he dies and makes adequate sacrifice. And they're the same ones for whom he intercedes. You see what he's doing as our high priest? He makes the offering that's acceptable for our sins. And then he prays for us that we'll be saved. And what's the glorious and comforting and encouraging doctrine? The Father has never yet turned down a request of his Son. I know, Father, that thou always hears me. I spoke it publicly for the sake of those that are listening, but I didn't have to ask. You're always going to do what I ask. He was asking, he was preparing to raise Lazarus and resuscitate him and bring him out of the grave. And his request was, I know you always hear me. When I want to raise somebody from the dead, you always grant it. When I ask you to give life to some of my own, you're going to give it. I do not pray just for these eleven. I pray for all those who are going to believe on me through their word. He has already prayed before you were ever born to his Father that you would be saved, would be one, and would be with him where he is. That's why you are. Because of the efficacious intercession of the Son of God. I pray. He's very specific whom he prays for. I pray not for the world, but for those whom you've given me out of the world. But I pray not just for those apostles whom you've given me out of the world, but for all those in the world who will believe on me. You see the, de- the division, though? Who will believe? They're not only given, they'll believe. If they don't believe, they'll not receive eternal life. As one said, do not stand still disputing about your election, but set to repenting and believing. Cry to God for converting grace. Revealed things belong to you. In these busy yourselves. Whatever God's purposes may be, I am sure His promises are true. Do you hear that? Whatever His purposes may be, I'm sure His promises are true. You say, was it God's purpose to save me? Am I elect? Am I chosen? Am I, am I given to Christ? Don't, worry, don't busy your little mind with that. That's God's business. That's not revealed. You know the point at which that is revealed? You know where you find out whether you're elect? And the only way you find out whether you're elect? Is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. The day you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in obedience to the command of the gospel and the free invitation of Christ, you will know you're elect. Then you'll look back and say, chosen before the foundation of the world. One has even described it in this way, and I think there may be a place for it. As you come to the gate that leads to life, it says, whosoever will, let him come. And you enter. And you look back on this side of the gate, and it says, chosen from before the foundation of the world. And very often when you come to the gate, you don't, you don't, not, you don't know anything about choice. You don't know anything about election. You don't need to know anything about election, and God ordinarily doesn't tell you anything about election. I don't know of anybody God's ever said, Now, I've chosen you, but you're not saved yet. Be assured, though, that you're elect, so someday it'll happen. 
God's Word never does that. The Gospel never suggests that you can relax because you will be saved in due time. Every time the Gospel comes, it's absolutely now that you must respond, right now. It's always urgent. Don't go home and say bye to your family. Don't go home to make preparations for your dad's and coming, coming death and burial and inheritance and, and estate. Don't go home and take care of your oxen that you haven't proven yet. You follow me. Now, and he cuts across the cord of all sorts of earthly attachments and all sorts of earthly dreams, and he cuts it right down the middle and he moves on. You follow or you don't. You believe or you don't. You believe, you shall live. You don't believe, you shall perish. God loved the world so that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whatever the decrees of heaven may be, Joseph Elaine said, one of my forebears, by the way, do you know I'm a descendant of the Elaine family? That's where Alan came from. Whatever the decrees of heaven may be, and I love the being a descendant of these words, I am sure if I repent and believe, I shall be saved. I don't know about the decrees, but I know about the promises. And whatever the purposes are, the promises are true. Dear brethren, don't wait. Don't tarry till you figure it out. Come and cast yourself on Christ. Now, do we have any visitors here who've never heard the doctrines of grace? Who don't know about Calvinism? Or perhaps you've heard about that and you've been told those people believe that whatever's going to happen is going to happen no matter what. Or in some extreme language, it's going to happen whether it does or not. And the myth is that we just sort of believe out there faith has set everything out and we just lie around waiting for God to work. We just take our hands off the plow and we say, well, Lord, if you want it to happen, you can let it happen. And why should I get out of bed this morning? If you want me to have a job, you can give me a job. There's a lot of hyper-Calvinism in our circles. Practical fatalism. You see, that, that's not what we believe. It's not what the Bible teaches. You just had a lesson in Calvinism. I just finished preaching it. You may not have recognized it. And the reason you may not have recognized it is because I preached the gospel. The biblical gospel. And did I say that you're elect so it doesn't matter what you do? I did not. I said you must come, repent from your sins and believe. Did I say that if you repent from your sins and believe there's a chance that if you weren't elect you can't be received? No, I did not say that. I said if you come you'll be received and you'll never be cast out. Because that's what the Lord teaches. Did I say that you can decide when and how you're going to come and God's bound to always be ready to receive? No, I didn't say that. I said you come when he draws you. It's God's doing. It's God's sovereign. When you say, well, that just mixes me all up, Pastor. It makes it feel like that, it's, that I'm going to have to ask God to do something. That's exactly right. That's what it is supposed to make you feel. But, Pastor, what if he doesn't? Then if you feel that, then you run and beg him and beg him and beg him and pray and cry to God till you know he saved you. He said, well, I'm not accustomed to wrestling with issues this much. I thought it was just as simple as making a decision, signing a card, and praying a prayer. Well, brethren, it may be that simple, but it ordinarily is not that easy. Because usually you have to turn back and look at your great wealth and know that what you just heard from the Savior when you said, how can I inherit eternal life, was go sell all that and give to the poor and preach the kingdom of God. That makes it a little bit more difficult than just deciding to follow Christ. Because you must understand that when you come to follow Christ, your dearest affections in this world have to be given up. That's another point. If there be no way but one, and the Bible surely makes it clear that there's only one way to God, 
then fly to him without delay. Never perplexing with the decrees and secrets of God. Without faith it is impossible to please God, the writer to the Hebrews tells us. It is a gospel duty to believe. Not to believe that you're elect, but to believe on Christ. May I suggest to you what it is to believe on Christ and bring this to a conclusion. I said, those who believe on him as he's presented in the gospel. You have not a right to expect to be, receive eternal life by believing on any old Jesus you decide to conjure up in your mind. Believing on the baby in the manger without reference to his cross is not going to get you to heaven. Believing on the meek and mild nice teacher who offered an alternate view of religion among all the other possible views is not going to get you to heaven. He must be believed as presented in the gospel. And how is he presented in the gospel? Well, among other things, he is presented in the first place as the only Savior. There is one God, the Bible says, and that eliminates all idolatry. And there is one mediator between God and man, and that eliminates all liberalism, all modernism, and all other Christian ways to God. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. If you get to God, it's got to be through him. I am the door. You can't go any other way. If you haven't believed him on those terms, you've not believed on the Jesus of the Bible. You have another Jesus, you've believed another gospel, and you are going to perish in your sins unless you repent of your idolatry and submit to Christ alone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Dear brethren, in this age of religious pluralism, the one thing they hate the most is the exclusive claims of the Christian gospel. They will tolerate every form of wretchedness and wickedness in the churches. They will not tolerate that. They will allow staff members of their churches to be practicing publicly avowed homosexuals and call it Christian. But if you ever walk into the church and say, only Jesus has ever saved or ever will save, they'll look down their nose at you. They'll find a way either to ostracize you or rid themselves of your company. I don't say that to suggest that you not do it. I just say it so you'll know it when it happens, that that's why it happens. The one doctrine that's most hated in this world, among all religions, including false Christianity, is that the only way to God is Jesus Christ. And it's the one that we must tenaciously hold to the rest of our days, or we all will perish as well. He's also presented in the gospel not only as the only Savior, but as a sufficient Savior. To believe on Jesus unto eternal life is to believe that there is to be no help from anybody else to save you. There is no need of help. Not from his mother, not from other saints, not from angels, who, as you read in Revelation this morning, reject the worship of men because they know that they are fellow servants of God. Now, did I say that to offend you who may be Roman Catholic? Well, let me say this to you, because we have a lot of people in our church that are members who used to be Roman Catholics. I didn't say it to offend you. I said it to enlighten you. I said it to confirm some of the doubts you no doubt already have, or you wouldn't be sitting here this morning. I said it to save you. 
from the error and the lie of Rome that suggests and implicitly, if not explicitly, continues to dramatize their conviction that when Jesus died 2,000 years ago, he did not do quite enough to save. He died and that was necessary, but it wasn't sufficient, according to Rome. You need to add to that your works, your sacraments, your prayers, your beads, your penance, your whatever. Dear brethren, nothing could be further from the gospel of the grace of God. Any man that preaches any other gospel than this one that we preach, let him be cut off from Christ and accursed. He's not preaching the biblical gospel. Now, did I say that if a person is a Roman Catholic, there's no chance that in this moment he has eternal life? I did not say that. But I said if he's a Roman Catholic and he has eternal life, it is because as a Roman Catholic he's a contradiction to his name. He believes what his church does not officially believe, does not officially practice. He believes that the Lord Jesus Christ is all and enough. His one sacrifice took care of all my sin forever and is never to be repeated, can never be repeated, and does not need any of our help to get men to God. He is an intercessor, the only intercessor that can get us to God. We do not need to go between anybody else, and in order to do so, we reject him. You cannot have Christ as the gospel presents him and have anybody else needed to get you to God through through him. Once you've added another intermediary, you've rejected the gospel Christ. Don't you see it? You do not have eternal life. You cannot get eternal life as long as you need anything other than Christ. But when you rest in him alone, not only will you be saved from your sins, you'll be saved all of a sudden from lots of men who love to possess your soul and keep you in bondage through lies. And we would spare you. You say, all you're trying to do is steal sheep. No, I'm trying to deliver goats. You know, all you want to do is build your church up. Brethren, if our primary motive was to have a big church, there are lots of things that I preached this morning I would never say publicly. Our goal is not yours, but you. When Jesus intercedes, he gets the job done. He gladly intercedes for his own. You don't need to get his mommy to side up to him and rub him and stroke him and talk him into being nice. He already loves us. He died for us. She didn't. He did. And when he intercedes, I tell you, all those that come to God by him will be saved to the uttermost because he ever lives to make intercession for them. He's the only Savior. He's a sufficient Savior. He's a sovereign Savior. And I'm not being redundant anymore. I'm, I'm saying a new twist to this thing. He's the sovereign Savior, meaning he's not only my Savior. He's my Lord and God and King. He's not here just to give me a few goodies to heaven while I will live my way. He is here with the right to command my obedience to all his commandments and the right and the will to punish all disobedience. He will come again to judge the whole world. He, he, sweet Jesus, will judge the wicked and cast them into the lake of fire. The Lord Jesus rides on a stallion of war and his vestige is drenched in the blood of his slain enemies. Don't you try to twist him into somebody who tolerates your ungodliness 
and try to talk him into saving you in the name of love and grace. You will come to him as Lord and Master or you will not come to him as he's presented in the Gospel. You confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. From the heart you believe upon him. With the mouth you confess him as Lord. No exceptions. No intermediaries. He's sovereign as a Savior. And finally, as he's presented in the Gospel, not only means he's the only Savior and a sufficient Savior and a sovereign Savior, but also he's a Savior from sins. Our generation would gladly have him be a Savior from an economic collapse. I doubt not that many hypocrites will soon be praying in their public services for an economic turn and they'll be asking the Lord Jesus to grant it. It's one of the things that makes me wonder if there's any chance we can have one for a while because he hates that kind of hypocrisy. He came not to save you from inconvenience. He came not to save you from getting sick in this world once in a while. He came not to keep you from having physical death and being buried like everybody else. He did not come into the world to make things happy and pleasant and rosy for your path. That is not what he did. He never came that way. And it's disillusioning to many young Christians when they start out and are so happy for the first three weeks and then all of a sudden life gets normal again. And they're shocked. What do I, it's just like the honeymoon, you know, when it's over. Wait a minute, marriage ain't what it started out to be. It's, this is more real. This is much like, more like mom and dad's than, my, than I thought mine would be. You see, he didn't come to make life a nice, pleasant place where you get all you want and the rest of these wicked people get theirs soon. He didn't come for you to spend the rest of your life on this planet making sure that the ungodly get theirs and you get what's coming to you. Your primary motive in this life is not so to deal with the government that they stop doing all these unjust things so you and your family of believers can live comfortably. Yes, we're all frustrated with the way the wicked do, but brethren, they've been doing this ever since they've been in the world, and you've been doing it the same way, and you would have continued if God hadn't turned you. You needed to get off this earthly salvation mentality. He didn't come to get you a Cadillac. He didn't come to see that you got a three-bedroom home with a heated pool. Those are options. He came to deliver you from your sins. That's why they call him Jesus. Savior. Because it is he that shall save his people, not from their poverty in this world. In fact, his saving work often sends them into poverty. Often the very things that follow his salvation produce the things that we most want to rid ourselves of. Persecution. Difficulty. Poverty, trouble. And through many tribulations, we're going to enter the kingdom of a God. But if you receive Christ as he's presented in the gospel, you're going to receive him as a savior from sin, delivering you from your guilt, not feelings of guilt, but real guilt, from the just condemnation of your own vile do deeds, from the wrath of God to come, and from the power, the practice, and the love of your pet sins. He came to deliver you from sin. And if you don't receive him that way and intend that to be his work, you're not believing on him as he's presented in the gospel. Faith, saving faith then, is a whole-souled commitment 
commitment to and reliance upon Jesus Christ alone in all the glory of his person and the perfection of his work. That's John Murray's definition. It's a good one. Whole-souled commitment to and reliance upon Jesus Christ alone the ways presented in the gospel. In all the glory of his person as God-man and the perfection, finished work of redemption for his people. I ask you this simple question. Have you yourself bowed to him as the Lord, trusted upon him and in him as the Savior, confidently leaned your whole hope and destiny upon him as your only hope, and looked to him and him alone away from yourself and all others as your salvation? Do you this morning believe from the heart upon the Lord Jesus Christ and, in the words of the marriage vows, forsaking all others, to him alone clean. Have you done that? If you have, you are a possessor of eternal life. You shall live. And though you die, you shall yet live. And in that living, you shall never die again. If you have not straightened that in your soul, you are not alive. You are dead in your sins. And you must perish unless you come to Christ. Come to Christ. Pray and ask God for the sake of his Son to save you from your sins. To deliver you from the love of your sins. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he's presented in the gospel. For it is only those who do so to whom God gives eternal life. May we... Be the happy recipients of testimonies in this place in the weeks to come that some have been delivered from death into life and that those of us who believe we possess it will rejoice all the more and live in the light of it. Let us bow together. Our Father, you helped us preach in answer to our prayers and you helped us hear and we thank you. We thank you that you did not give us this morning what we deserved, but you again displayed your marvelous grace in opening the windows of heaven to our needy souls. We ask now that you would grant to us that we would follow when we leave this place and carry these words with us and let them sink into the heart, that we would not allow the birds of the air to pluck them out before they take root or thorns to choke them off, but that they would produce fruit unto righteousness and everlasting life. Our Father, I pray for those here this morning, the young and the older who are without you and who are yet dead in their trespasses and sins, that you would look upon them in compassion and deliver them from their sins and give to them, for your Son's sake, eternal life. Oh God, thank you that we have such a blessing, an unspeakable gift through your Son, May his soul's sufferings be satisfied by many here who come to lay hold upon him and know the benefit and blessing of everlasting peace and prosperity in your kingdom. Save sinners and glorify your name thereby. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.